Welcome to another episode of the Get Your Edge podcast. I'm your host, Brian Bott from Sports Advantage here in Madison. I'm here with my co-host, Dean Manchi over in Kimberly. Coach, how we doing? Awesome. Great, great. So got a couple things before we start. Obviously, we want to thank our listeners that are, that are tuning in again. Um, again, if you can share the information, that's a great way to get the information of the podcast out to a lot of new listeners. Obviously, our target audience is, is high school and college coaches, high school and college athletes. And Dean, just before we get to our guest here, obviously high school football is back in the swing and it seems like things are really starting to get back to normal. I mean, the Olympics are going and all that other stuff. What do you, you know, what do you think on that? Yeah, I know our kids are very excited. You know, at least at Kimberly High School, we had spring football last year and it's been such a short turnaround. And then we had track didn't get done till you know, the end of June and all of a sudden, boom, it's like, it's hitting really quick. So I know the kids are excited as coaches are excited. And yeah, it does seem like things are getting back to normal, you know, and uh, no mask and all that kind of stuff. And I know Tuesday is the first day of football and kids are getting ready to get on that gridiron again and all the other sports as well. When we talk about the other fall sports, you know, for example, volleyball and everything else. So exciting times. Well, and, and, you know, just across the country too, a lot of things getting back to normal. I can speak for myself. My wife and I attended the Foo Fighters concert on Friday and man, you know, not a sporting event, but just a bigger event where just a lot of energy and really a lot of emotion, honestly, from people, you know, just being able to do things that bring other, a lot of people together and, you know, just, just a really special event. And a lot of more of those things are, are coming out here. So uh, we're really excited today to bring on, we actually have our first track and field coach um, on. His name is Coach Pat Ebel. He is the men's and women's throw coach for Auburn University. Um, and we're also really excited because Coach Manchi actually has a kid from the Fox Valley Throws Club that's going to be attending Auburn. Um, so Coach Ebel, are you there? Yes, sir. Yes, here I am. Awesome. Coach, you know, if you could share a little bit about your background, things like that, we let everybody kind of fly off the cuff a little bit and just kind of share a little bit about your background and stuff like that. We'll dive into a lot of it, but just give us a, a quick background on yourself. Sure. Yeah. Um, been coaching um, at the high school level since ooh, 1992. Um, been uh, coached at the high school level, probably about 11, 12 years. Then uh, got into college coaching at the D3 level at um, Wisconsin Whitewater. Was there for about a couple of years. Then uh, took a job at uh, Division Three Oshkosh. And that's where I got to meet Coach Matchy. He was the first guy to call me up and, and uh, started tuning my ear about throws, and we became good friends. Um, that was in 2001 and was there for 11 years as an assistant coach, as a throws coach, then also became the head coach of the women's program the last three years, uh, then made a jump to Penn State, was there for four years, um, coached some great athletes there. Um, Darrell Hill, which we'll, we'll talk about down the road here, and, and Ryan Whiting at World Championships and Olympics, and then uh, made a jump, got smart, got sick of the winners in Wisconsin and, and Pennsylvania, and then moved south to the SEC uh, co a conference with Auburn, and I'm going into my sixth year this year already. So kind of my background in coaching um, from high school all the way to, to present right now. That's awesome. I know, you know, just talking with Dean, because I think we talk pretty much every day, brings your name up a lot as someone who's had a big influence in, in his life and his career. Um, and I know he's really excited. I believe it's 
quit and win that's that's coming next year um so he's really excited to have you know i think his first uh athlete from his throws club go to a division one school so that's really exciting it's it's awesome when you can you know send someone to someone who has the same beliefs as you from a coaching standpoint so that's great coach with a you know, kind of want to get in here with the Tokyo Olympics currently going on, which I, I think a lot of our listeners are probably tuning in. Give our listeners some tips on, you know, how athletes can prepare for meets that are outside the country. Right. Uh, because that's a, that's a whole different ball game. Yeah. You're, when you, when you're flying internationally, you know, from time changes to different foods, to cultures, to sleep habits being interrupted, you know, there's, there's a lot of things. So as a coach, with your athlete, really, you're looking at, you know, with your athlete, you got to, they got, they got to trust in the training that you've done, that you've developed over the years that you've known this kid. So when you're traveling, as I say, you're going to trust the process and trust in the process means you're not deviating from what you've done year in and year out. So you don't want to switch up that plan last minute as you're going overseas to compete in the biggest meet of your career. So the, the, the athlete and the coach have to have that kind of togetherness and, and make sure they stay the course so that when they get there, they just don't change everything at the last minute. You know, and one of the, I think the biggest thing when you're traveling and, and especially at the high level, that mental preparation is key. As we all know, you know, sports, 90% of it's mental. The reason I say that at the Olympic level um, or at the high D1 level, you know, these, these student athletes have used their body and they've done repetitions thousands and thousands of times. Their body knows what to do. And now it's the mental prep. So using, we use sort of sports psychologists, even here at Auburn, we have four on staff that our kids use outside of what we do physically with them. So, you know, if you're going over to this meets in the Olympics, a lot of these big athletes, you'll, you'll talk to them. They said, it's not the physical preparation it was the mental preparation, years of mental preparation and getting ready for these meets when I go, you know, to Tokyo or to wherever, you know, because the physically the body's done those movements thousands of times. They really don't need it. Um, you know, so coaching, uh, we, we really work on one to two uh, cues that they can use mentally. Um, some of those athletes to recenter themselves after an attempt in the throws or whatever event they're doing, um, they'll use what I call power words. Um, a word that just helps them reset focus and mental prep to do the next uh, movement that they're going to be doing. Um, quick visual, uh, visualization cue that they can use. Um, you know, so, you know, at the Olympics, world championships, athletes, you know, they don't get in the practice circle um, or the competition circle. So, for example, when I went to Worlds with Ryan Whiting back in Poland a couple years back, um, I was shocked to see that we didn't get into the competition venue to the day of. So most of these throwers are used to practicing like in the United States. We get in there the day or two before we get to do as many throws as we want. And the next day, next day or two later, we compete. Well, at the Olympics, you are literally doing all your practice throws at an outside venue. They, they marshal you in, you sit for an hour, then you get to warm up, but you only get two to three throws. So that's where that physical, uh, excuse me, the mental prep comes in to make sure you are ready to go. So the good coaches, they'll, they'll mimic some of those practices here in America to limit the athlete's amount of uh, physical prep that they can do 
to get them ready for that, 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 you know, where you're only getting two to three throws. So, um, you know, traveling outside of the United States to compete, the biggest, one of the biggest things that I've learned is a lot of kids, if they can get over there and compete uh, many times before the Olympics, they get used to that international travel and competing in those big meets. So, yeah. Pat, I know in our conversations and all of our years of friendship and talking on a daily basis, you get to recruit in track and fields a lot different than a lot of the other sports right. at least, uh, from a collegiate level and that you actually will recruit people out of the country. And I know just recently uh, you just did a recruiting visit outside the country. You want to explain where that was and kind of that experience. And it's got to be much different than obviously recruiting somebody in the States. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I've been all over the United States recruiting and that's, that's great. You get to go to different States, meet different people, uh, get to know the families real well, but when you travel internationally, I just got back two days ago from the Bahamas. Um, so everyone goes, oh, you get to go to the Bahamas to recruit. I said, yeah, it's a tough job. It's a tough job. Uh, sunshine and, and beautiful water and all that stuff. And, you know, I get to watch practices and spend time at the beach when we're not, when we're not doing the recruiting. So yeah, I just got back there from a, a three-day trip uh, of three and a half days. And, um, one of the unique things is one, you're meeting kids that you want to bring in from other countries that could be um, a big part of your team, getting to know their culture, getting to know their coaches, getting to know their families. Um, it's a little bit different. The process is longer, meaning you're going to try to develop that relationship um, long distance. Uh, you don't get to see this kid like if this uh, like recruiting a kid in the United States, I can I can look at them and um, go go to their meets here. I can't do that. Um, so really, it's it's talking about uh, developing a good trust with his coach, his family, and also the athlete. You know, the one of the kind of a funny story. Recruiting um, overseas can be can be um, tricky. Um, I, I shared earlier that uh, driving is different there. Um, everything's opposite. So driving on the right hand side of the road, we're driving on the left hand side. And um, my, my first thing, I went to the hotel, dropped my stuff off. I'm going to go check out the island. Driving, I got from the, the airport to the hotel, no problem. I, I pull out of my hotel, and I'm looking like I normally do in America, and the lane's clear. So I start to pull out. Well, here comes a Mack Semi beeping its horn, laying on its brakes. I, I thought, geez, I almost died before I even got to the visit here. Oh, so <laughs> and, uh, recruiting uh, internationally can present its own challenges. Um, and one of them for me was just learning to drive on the opposite side of the road. But yeah, recruiting internationally is really cool because you're bringing kids from all over the world to be part of your team. So the um, experiences that they get and also the experiences they give to kids in America um, makes that college uh, team a, a very unique uh, setting when, when you get kids from overseas. That's awesome. Hey, hey, Dean, we need to uh, open a sports advantage Fox Valley throws in the Bahamas. Hopefully come down and recruit the athletes and you and I can, can live down there and we can, we can, Oh God, that would be awesome. We gotta, we gotta put a business plan together for that. Um, Sounds great to me, Brian. <laughs> the wives would love that. Um, you drive though. Yeah. We'll get I don't to, think we'll I would get, drive real good on it. We'll opposite get, side we'll of get, the road. We'll scooters. We just scoot around. There you go. Um, <laughs> um so coach, you know, you talked a little bit about the, the flying aspect of it. And I know you've worked at a lot of different levels and obviously, you know, going to meets and stuff like that, you know, in division one, you know, if you're a meet across the country, obviously you're going to fly division three. Uh, most of the time you're taking buses, 
Um, so how's the different preparation that maybe you go through or different things you try and do with your athletes as far as like before you fly? I know at Wisconsin, you know, when we had a road trip, we would always really intensify our hydration process um, before the kids flew because, you know, flying takes its toll on that. Um, so what are some of the differences that you've seen with that and maybe some different things that, that you use to prepare kids for road trips based on whether they're flying or bussing? Yeah, yeah. The, the flying one is, 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 is a bigger one. Um, and you, you touched on that, the hydration part. Really, you know, I look at about five things that we try to do with our athletes um, prior to leaving or while we're on the trip to adjust to um, different time zones. Um, for example, like when we fly from here to um, Eugene, you're, you're looking at two, two and a half to three hours difference in time zone. So it's, it is an adjustment. So really just in the time, you know, we're looking at um, eating, you know, meals and, and going to bed according to the time zone that you are currently in, um, you know, try to get on that schedule as quick as you can. And, and we find that it takes a couple of days for athletes to do that. So, you know, when we're flying to the national championships or out of country, we try to get there, you know, three to four days early to allow those kids to, to let their bodies adjust to that. You know, drinking long, uh, drinking water on long distance trips is very important. Hydrating even before you get on that, that flight and also hydrating while you're in the air because uh, traveling creates uh, dehydration. So keeping those kids hydrated. Sleeping while flying, you know, we, we try to try to make the flight as comfortable as you can, you know, so you're looking at things like white noise, noise canceling headphones, eye mask, comfortable travel pillows, stuff like that, that, that helps the athlete um, be as comfortable as you can when you're in the air for, you know, five, six hours or, or longer if you're traveling farther. You know, once we get there, you, you know, you're talking about keeping your sleep comfortable in the hotel. Because sleeping and hydration, I think, were the two biggest things that we found with our athletes when traveling long distances. You know, so keeping your room cool, silencing your phones uh, and alarms while you're sleeping, you know, white, white noise. I use a fan when I travel. So I'll go in and I'll turn the bathroom fan on just to have that background noise to help me fall asleep. I try to bring a pillow from home or a blanket from home so I have some familiarity. Um, you know, I think sometimes hotel pillows... If you have a favorite pillow, bring that with you, because if you can sleep and you can stay hydrated and, and eating good, you're going to compete good. You're going to cover quicker from those lung flights. And, um, you know, you can try melatonin, something like that. That might help you stay asleep longer. Um, you know, adjusting food. For example, when, when I flew over to Poland with Ryan Whiting, I had one suitcase. Ryan had three, one for his clothes, one for his competition stuff. And then he packed a whole suitcase full of food or what he called comfort foods. We were there for a week. So he packed a whole bag, even brought a coffee maker, a French press machine with him so he could make his own coffee um, while we were in Poland. I thought that was, that was interesting. So the difference when you travel on a long bus trip, um, you know, you're looking, you know, what we do is we, we might bus for four to six hours. As soon as we get there, we get the kids in the hotel, and then we do a shakeout practice right at the hotel. So we're getting the kids out moving, some, some easy jogging, easy sprinting. Um, we're, we're looking at doing 30 minutes of just waking the body up. Um, kids hate it at first when you get off the bus. They're like, hey, all I want to do is sleep or I just want to go in the hotel and chill. You know, so we found out that the body does a lot better if we can get a 30-minute shakeout 
And then after that, we'll get on the bus. We'll take them for another 30 minutes over the competition area. So if a kid is throwing the next day or competing the next day, we don't do much with them. They get on the track, they get in the rings, they get on the runways, they take a look at their competition venues just to get a visual cue of where they're going to be. If they're competing two days or later, we'll do a, uh, a throws practice or running practice with them. Then they'll rest the next day, hydrate really good, and then compete the next day. So, you know, after the long bus ride, we do want some activity. Just don't let them go to the hotel and, and kind of just relax. So those are pretty, pretty much the, the difference between long flight or long bus ride. Yeah, we got a lot of uh, coaches that listen, and you have a, a pretty familiar um, situation in that you started out as an assistant track coach yep. and at UW Oshkosh, and that's where we had our connection. And then you became a head track and field coach. So explain some of the difference between them and if one of the assistant coaches wants to be a head coach, what would you suggest that they do to help them, you know, acquire that next position or that next promotion? Yeah, I, I think being uh, the, the assistant coach there when I was at Oshkosh, you know, for that for those eleven years, um, you know, being a, uh, the the assistant coach for you know seven or eight of those years helped me out becoming a head coach because you could see kind of behind the scenes what the head coach was doing. And I had a great head coaches to learn from in my coaching career. I, I think that's one of the biggest reasons I've, I've been successful is I've had mentors or head coaches that allowed me to, as an assistant, allowed me to kind of do some of those daily things that they had to do um, that I could take off their plate and kind of get me ready for when I wanted to make that jump to be a head coach, um, I was ready. Um, so as an assistant coach, you know, I'm just responsible for recruiting and coaching. That's it. You know, as a head coach, you're recruiting, you're coaching, and then you got to deal with all these assistant coaches and, and making, you know, at, at Oshkosh, I was uh, scheduling buses. I was balancing a budget. I was now dealing with athletes outside my event group, um, you know, running the meetings on Monday mornings, uh, doing the the meetings Friday night before the meets, you know, scheduling the hotels, all that other stuff, ordering equipment for the whole team, not just so, you know, like I said, you know, those, those seven to eight years that I was an assistant coach and then, you know, taking some of those responsibilities that the head coach had really got me ready to become a head coach down the road. Coach, I think that's, you know, people have a huge misconception about, you know, you're like a D1, D2, D3, um, you know, from what I've seen, you know, there's really not that big of gap between the type of athletes at, at division one versus division three. And, you know, you obviously been in Oshkosh. I was a UW Oshkosh grad as well. So I understand that, especially in Wisconsin, you know, a lot of those schools from a division three level are ultra competitive across the country. Um, but now you're a division one strength coach in the SEC, which SEC is looked at as without a doubt, one of the top, you know, three or four conferences in the country. Um, so what do you see as similarities, you know, working at those two places? Because there definitely is, you're going to, you know, maybe a kid, you know, from a football, I guess I can speak football wise, maybe a kid runs a four or five versus a four, four. And that's really the difference. You know, maybe the kid is six, two versus six foot. And that's really the difference with recruiting parameters. So, 
what are some of the similarities you see from a track and field perspective, you know, and then some of the differences that, that you guys also encounter or that you have encountered? Yeah, I, I think some of those similarities and differences, like you said, um, <laughs> you know, some of the D1 coaches versus D3 coaches, uh, you know, D1 coaches, like if you don't meet a certain height requirement, you don't get a football scholarship. If you don't meet a certain weight requirement or, you know, you know, they look at all these different uh, parameters that and I think sometimes limit some of the coaches. So like at the D3 level, I think a lot of the kids that I was very fortunate to coach could have made that D1 jump. They were just overlooked because they didn't have the good junior senior year um, that they were supposed to have. And, and they got to, to me at D3 and boy, they blossomed. I, I've had a number of kids at the D3 level. Um, if you would have taken their marks from that year and compared them to the marks at a division one, the NCAA championships, they would have been an all American at D1 versus the national champ at, at D3. So I think some of those kids just get overlooked um, based on height requirements, or they just didn't quite have the, the numbers, but, you know, they, they, they fell to the WIAC um, versus going to the Big Ten or an SEC. Um, you know, so I, I think some of those things are, are, you know, some of those kids are just overlooked um, many times um, by, by, by D1 coaches. So, Pat, you know, we really encourage Brian and I, all of our athletes to be multi-sport at the high school level. And I know when you recruit kids, that's one of the things you look for. In my experience, many times a football or basketball player at first ends up liking track more at the end of their high school career. You know, they kind of do it maybe because a coach talks them into doing this. Hey, you know, you got some ability. We think you could be a sprinter in track and field or a pole vaulter, or you could be a thrower. And then um, can you explain your experience when recruiting athletes? Because I'm sure at the females, you get a lot of volleyball athletes, you know, basketball athletes, probably the same thing. And, you know, as youngsters, track and field, many times they don't start at a young age. Many times, in my instance, the first time they become a thrower is at the freshman year in high school. And that's a lot of times just because we go up to that athlete and say, hey, why don't you give it a try? We're basketballing, you know, and, and volleyball and all those other sports are usually playing at a very, very young age. So you want to explain some of that? Yeah, yeah, de yeah definitely. Uh, I mean, obviously, as a, a college coach, I like kids that are doing two to three sports a year. Um, it makes them a better athlete, period. Um, different movements, you know, um, versus as it was used with the rows. It's very, you know, linear in general. I mean, playing football teaches your lateral movement, volleyball, the, the, the vertical component. I mean, so for, for a throws coach, I really like kids that um, – play football, you know, for a thrower, that's going to be an offensive lineman generally, a defensive lineman, they understand leverage and all that stuff. Uh, wrestlers love wrestlers because of the mental uh, capacity and the toughness that they have. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of those kids, um, being multi-sports athletes, very, uh, is very much beneficial for them when they move to the, the next level. Um, I get worried as a, as a college coach is if a kid says, yeah, I've been just thrower. Uh, since a freshman year. I don't know if they have much more upside to them anymore, but a lot of those kids that are multi-sports, when we get them to college, now they're just focused on track and field. They usually blossom into to being very good uh, throw for, for us at college level. Definitely. Definitely. I think, I think too, Dean, you know, 
one of the cool things about you know, track and, and just all sports in general is that you have overlapping things that can help. I know we had Joe Thomas on and he used the fact that his glide technique, actually, he, you know, integrated that into his pass set technique. And now, you know, NFL coaches are, are using that as a way they teach, you know, tackles in the NFL, how to set based on his track, his track experience, which is, you know, what we're talking about with multi-sport athletes is that there's so much carryover. And I think too, coach, one of the things that, you know, maybe you can speak on a little bit, we're a little is, you know, the, the specialization of not only, you know, sports, but also in the weight room, right? I know Dean and I have the focus of, Hey, you know, you're in high school, we're going to create the best athletes possible. I love watching and being in the private sector. I love watching people who talk about, Hey, play multi-sport, Hey, play multi-sport. And all of a sudden they have a basketball specific training program, or they have a softball specific training program. The bottom line is we want to create the best athletes possible. And then the higher the levels they go, you know, the more technical the application is, right? What do you think on that? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, you know, we're, you know, at our level, developing athletes, we're, we're always looking at, you know, the strength component, obviously. And in the weight room, we're doing a lot of Olympic lift movements, um, whether it's from a hang clean or hang snatch or from, from the floor power snatch. Uh, so we're trying to develop the total athlete, not just a thrower. Um, you know, a lot of times you're like, oh, you're, you're a thrower, so you're just big and strong. Uh, the throwers are some of the most powerful people I've ever met. Uh, if you if you were to line them up against a D1 sprinter, they'll stay with them for 15, 20 meters, probably even beat them. They just don't have the long haul all the way down the track. You know, throwers, we're, we're usually within that 20 to 30 meters, and then everything kind of shuts down after that. So, you know, we're doing plyometrics every day. We're doing hand grip strength exercises for a hammer and shot put discus throwers. Um, you know, so we're, we're looking at developing a total athlete with that strength and conditioning uh, component that we, we do almost every day, almost every day. Pat, you know, to all the high school track athletes that want to continue to throw on college, what should they be doing to let colleges know that they want to do track in college? What are some things that yeah. they can do to kind of get ahead, you know, of the game with the COVID that just really changed everything up. And that some of these kids didn't have as many meets. They didn't have as many opportunities because they lost the year in track and field. So what are some of the things that these kids can do now to help them get kind of noticed? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the number one thing I suggest um, for high school coaches or high school athletes to get on a coach's radar is send them a direct email. Um, direct emails work the best. I, I love that because the kids reached out to me. Um, I probably know the kid because we have the thing called mile split, which all college coaches and high school coaches, they look on there to see where their kids are ranked. Um, so I look on there every day when, when track season's in, in session to look at how these kids competing. Um, with the COVID situation, that's unique because a lot of these kids lost a year. So now I have to rely on our high school coaches and these athletes reaching out to me and sending me practice videos um, because they didn't have a lot of meets. And I think that's the best way. Reach out. Um, our cell phone numbers are generally on our coaching websites. I've had a number of kids call me or text me, college or excuse me, high school coaches call me, say, hey, I got this kid, think he or she could be real special. And so we get to talk and, and kind of develop a relationship. And then I reach out to that student athlete. 
Um, I'm, I'm not a big component of the, um, the, the mass um, college uh, recruiting services, if you will. Some of them are very good, um, but um, I, I, I do like it when college, uh, when high school coaches and, and kids reach out directly to us. That seems to be the best way to go about getting noticed by a college coach. Uh, another question with that, and I kind of agree with that same philosophy is a lot of these parents want to, you know, go out and get all these recruiting services that are guaranteeing scholarships and, and all that kind of stuff out there. And, and I always tell our athletes that when they talk to me is they make sure you communicate with your coach before parents start investing money with all these different services, because I think great high school program, lots of coaches have connections, just like I have a great connection with you and people can reach out and um, get that information. And now with technology, I know from a football standpoint, you know, huddle and on all that, just like you said, you can take videos of people, you know, throwing and, you know, putting the distance out there and all that kind of stuff that I think a lot of those, um, situations or those marketing things um, aren't necessary. And I would think definitely the athlete should definitely talk to the coach first and have that communication and parents too. Cause I think a lot of times parents just quickly, just something comes up on social media or Instagram or whatever. And all of a sudden they're paying 1500, $2,000 for this service. And maybe that could be helpful, but they never even had a communication with their own coach first. Right. Uh, that's what athletes got to do. Athletes should reach out to their coach anyway. Just have that great relationship with your coach. Tell your coach, hey, I want to go to the next level, and this is what I want to do. And then I think coaches can really help those individuals out. And then, you know, then it can be a parent contact that way as well. And I think every coach out there is always trying to do what's best for their athlete. And everybody working together, I think, is going to be the best situation for all parties involved. Yeah, I mean, even to, to, to expand on that, uh, as a college coach, if a kid reaches out to me personally in an email or a call, that shows me they're a self-starter. And we as coaches and strength people, uh, coaches, we love self-starters. I'm not having to pull this kid off the couch to get him excited or her excited. She or he is reaching out to me. I know that kid, even if they're not showing the marks, they're going to be a hard worker. They put the effort into contacting me personally versus sending their information to a college recruiting service. Again, those aren't bad, but a lot of times us college coaches, if they reach out to us directly or even on our personal um, recruiting webpage that each college has, you have a track and field or football or basketball where they can go in and fill out all that information. We look at that stuff a lot more than we do some of those services. So I think, you know, showing initiative and being a self-starter is huge for us. Hey, Coach, real quick, on just kind of on the recruiting part, too, I, I, I agree with you. You know, having kids that are putting the time and effort in, you know, A.J. Klein talked about, you know, when he was at Kimberly, you know, how he made his own DVDs, you know, and that was like, you know, seven, eight, ten years ago. Before a huddle and all this, he like spliced his own DVDs. So, you know, you see that, that the kid wanted to play. Um, when you're recruiting, and again, I don't want you to share your exact parameters on this because that's, that's your stuff. But, you know, I've listened to some different coaches and Urban Meyer's one where, where he kind of laid out what they had at Ohio State. Are there 
and we're, we're actually looking at doing this for our, our baseball organization as well. There, there are certain parameters, right, that you look at and the kid, you're like, no brainer, this kid, I'm recruiting him. But then once you get into that, you know, that thought of how much can you develop, are there certain things like a matrix that you guys have as far as some different, you know, is he a good kid? Does he have good grades? You know, is he doing, you know, extra in extra, you know, community service, stuff like that. Do you have certain parameters? Because I think a lot of kids think that just their performance is the thing that gets them recruited. A lot of times, like you said, if he's a multi-sport athlete, maybe he's a, you know, three or four inches shorter than you, you know, want, but at the same time, he's from a good program. He's from a good family. He, he, are there things that you guys have in play for that as well? Yeah, I, I think you just touched on that a lot, Brian. I feel as a college coach, we have to be confident. So I feel if I, I, even if they're not showing those numbers, I, sh I feel where I, if they're coming from a good family, a good program, um, they service their community, um, just an overall general good person um, where they're getting good grades. I don't have to worry about them when they come to college passing classes. I should be a good enough coach. If they're in that, that walk on standard to partial scholarship, I should be able to get them to that next level. Because if they do all that stuff, they're a hard worker already. They're going above and beyond just what a normal athlete would, and especially for this level. If they're doing all those other things, and, and um, generally we can take those kids, we just call them diamonds in the rough. Yep. Um, where this kid just needs a little bit of a polish, you know, a confidence, a coach having confidence in that kid and, and developing that relationship with them. Um, you know, which starts with the home visits and, and calling and, and texting these kids um, uh, year round and, and really develop a relationship with them. Um, so those kids know that they're going to be looked after when they get to college and, and, and things are going to turn out good for them. Yeah, I think those are the big things that that takes that kid to that next level. The other thing is, uh, Brian, I've had the opportunity to visit Pat at the college level and have him you know, see how they work the practice and works with his athletes and everything like that. But I think the culture is big. I know Pat's big into that. It's how is this person going to fit with the other throwers that are currently there? And is he going to bring, uh, is that this athlete, female, male, what are they going to bring to the table to increase their culture and make their culture better? And I know we've had conversations, Pat, many a times is, hey, this person might be talented enough but if you don't think they're a good fit for your Auburn throws program, that's going to make a difference as well. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And that's, that's a great point. Um, the first thing I do after an official or unofficial visit with my kids is I, whoever hosted that person, I talk to that person. Hey, what is this person like away from me as a coach? Were they, were they the same or did they change personalities? Were they, were they conservative around me and they, they got with you and all they wanted to do was go to a party or whatever. Um, and I asked then I asked the whole group, how was your interaction with that potential student athlete? Do we want to bring him or her into our program here at Auburn? And, and most of the kids that we recruit, yeah, they fit that. They, they fit what we're trying to do here. They're hardworking, they're self-starter. They want to get to the next level that's a great fit for us. And they gel well with the team. Um, rarely had we passed on a kid because they came here, they were, they were acting well with me and then was different with, with the student athletes. Um, but that's where I rely on my current student athletes to kind of let me know, hey, this, this is gonna be a good fit for our program and they're gonna be good with our culture. 
So let's talk about uh, a visit. So you have an athlete, they're coming down to visit you on campus. Maybe they're from, you know, uh, a different state. What is that process? What does that day look like? Sure. Give our listeners yeah. just a, a little clue on, you know, what that looks like an official visit. Could you give us an idea? Yeah, let's say they're flying in. Um, they'll fly in, uh, you know, down here at Auburn. We're in Auburn, Alabama. They'll fly into um, down here in Montgomery, which is about 40 minutes away, or they'll fly into Atlanta. Most of them are coming into Atlanta. Um, we'll pick them up at the airport. We'll take them to the hotel on a Thursday night. We check them in the hotel and then we got to leave them. Um, then the, the, the official visit will begin on Friday morning. And Friday's, Friday is what I call the business day. That's where they're going to meet with their, um, their, their major that they're going to be going in. So they'll meet with professors. They'll meet with all the coaching staff. Um, we'll do breakfast, lunch, and dinner as we normally do. So they get overfed a lot of time when they're on these, these visits. You know, you do more eating sometimes you do than you do meetings. They'll meet the team. Um, they'll do all the stuff. They'll meet with their academic advisor on the athletic side as well as the academic side. Um, so they're going to have a good picture after the first day of touring the campus and seeing the dorms and meeting all the people that are going to be part of their lives for the next four to five years from coaching staff all the way down to the equipment manager. They'll meet all of them. They'll be putting on uniforms. They'll do all that stuff. They'll get their picture taken, you know, all that stuff that, that, you know, kind of the wow factor. They'll see the weight rooms. They'll see everything that's going to be part of their life. And that Friday, Saturday, then usually we take them to the football game. They're on the football field. They get to see a different sport and what that's like in front of 90,000 fans. Um, you know, SEC football games like the Big Ten and some of these all powerful. It's, it's unbelievable um, the amount of uh, energy that you get in a stadium with 90,000 people. So that's that's the wow factor on Saturday. And then Sunday morning, they, they leave early in the morning. We'll have breakfast. We'll just kind of wrap up talking about what scholarship, if they're available, um, what we expect the next process to be, um, answer any questions that mom and dad have or the student athlete has, and then we get them back to the airport and then they're, they're going back home. That's great information because I don't think a lot of our listeners understand that whole process. And uh, I was down there when you had a recruit one time and we went to that Iron Bowl game, Auburn, Alabama, and Auburn ended up winning. And what an unbelievable experience that was. And uh, I'll tell you, um, I graduated long time from college, but Auburn University had me sold as far as that day goes. Uh, last thing, we always ask our guests, what get your edge advice would you give to our athletes and also the coaches that are listening out there? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. You know, um, you know how, do, how do you become a better coach, a better athlete? And, and I think you know, with the coach, you know, get your edge advice. I would give for a coach really there's about four things that I've learned as I've gone through this process in the years. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things, but really comes down to being yourself for a coach, you know, because your athletes, you know, they're going to, they're going to know the true you. So you want to be yourself so that athlete can accept and believe in your approach. As I always say, my big thing is my athletes down here, they hear trust the process. And that process is everything that we do through the whole year, the practices, the lifting, the conditioning, the stretching, all that stuff. The second thing I would say is be confident in your approach. Um, athletes will know if you're telling them the truth or not. Um, so be confident in what you're doing as a coach. Um, whether it's right or wrong, they're going to buy into it. So most of the time we are at this level, you're, you're doing a lot of the right things. 
So, you know, be, be confident in what you're doing. Uh, stay calm. Uh, <laughs> as, as a coach, you know, being cool, calm, and collective. If your athletes see that and they watch and they take cues from you as a coach, you know, a lot of the times, you know, the coaches or the, the athletes mimic what the coach is. Um, so if you want those kids to be cool and, 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 and ready to be prepared for a competition, they need to stay calm. Um, and being an example, my fourth one is being an example. Practice what you preach to the athletes. Um, you know, you must be positive yourself in order for these athletes to think and act positively as well. You know, so I think that's a big thing. You know, practice what you preach, carry yourself how you want your athletes to carry themselves. So I think those four things really will take a coach that wants to get to this level. You do those three or four things, I think that's going to help you as you as you grow into an, an, an athlete. Lower level coaches that want to get to the D1, as I did, and, and a lot of coaches that are successful, ask questions. If you don't know, ask someone that's that's above you. Make sure you're always growing as a coach. The, the, the people that um, don't grow, they're dinosaurs, man. They, they, they'll go extinct as a coach. So you got to keep asking questions. Um, I've, I've learned from high school coaches. I've learned from Olympians and Olympic coaches. I, I don't care what level they're on. You're going to learn something from, um, from each of those people when you have a good conversation. As far as getting uh, a good, you know, get your edge advice for an athlete, really there's two things that I would, what I would, I would focus on. Be diligent with yourself. And that really comes under the part two. There's understanding your why. I talk about that with my athletes a lot. Why am I putting all these hours into my practice? Why am I sacrificing time away from my family and friends? If you can understand your why and define your why, you're going to be, you're going to be successful. You know, be laser focused on your goals and go after them. As we all know, we're all, all three of us are former athletes, right? Your window, your window for competing and being an athlete is very, very short. So you never want to look back at your athletic time and, 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 and wish I would have done this. I could have done this. I should have done this. So understanding your why is, is really, really huge in an athlete's career. It gets them focused, and they know exactly what they're going after then. Coach, that was fantastic. Um, you know, we've had a great time chatting with you today. Um, just such great information um, for a lot of different, you know, for all different sports, obviously. And I know, obviously, you're a track coach, but so many of the things that we talked about today applicable for different sports. So, Dean, do you have anything else for Coach Ebel before we shut her down here today? I just want to thank Coach Ebel for coming on, being our first track and field um, coach on our podcast, and then. You know, I just want to thank uh, both of you because you guys have been just huge positive influences on my coaching career and just me as being a better person and mentors in the strength and conditioning world, the coaching world and the track and just great friendships that I've had with you guys. And, and this has been awesome. I really appreciate it. Well, I think too, you know, it's, it's fun to have people with the same growth mindset, right, in your life and kind of keep your circle circle small of people you can talk to and people you can trust. So coach, really appreciate having you on. Uh, wish you a lot of success. Obviously you got a lot of different things going and um, keep growing that program down at Auburn and we will see everybody next time. Chop it. <laughs>